Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Keeping Good Company, the podcast helping you build business success through culture and leadership. Today, we're joined by Guy Strong, country head at Sandos Australia and New Zealand. Corinne Cantor, head of consulting at Human Synergistics, will also be in the studio today. We've had some great conversations about culture and leadership, and now we're talking culture in action. Let's get started. Guy, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. Tell us first of all about Sandos, what it actually is. Sandos is a uh, part of Novartis, which is a pharmaceutical company, and we specialize in generics. So we provide those cheaper copies when originator um, products lose their patent. Um, And we're really very integral to ensuring a sustainable health economy in Australia and New Zealand. So really, most Aussies would be using your products. I I know I do. Yeah, we supply one in every uh, five medicines in Australia. So the chances are you've probably had a Sandos medication at some time. Oh, I have. What I really want to talk to you about, though, is how you have transformed the culture at Sandos. I mean, you began there in 2018. Yeah, so almost uh, four years ago to the day. So arrived, it was an organization that was having a bit of trouble at that particular time, had five years of stagnant sales and five years of declining profitability. And there were really question marks in the organization whether or not we would remain in Australia and New Zealand. So I quickly had to try and find out what what the issue was with the organization. And a lot of the things, the fundamentals were there. I mean, I was amazed by how knowledgeable and how much access and great customer relationships all uh, the people at Sandos had, but there was just something amiss. And it became pretty apparent within the, the first month or so that there was a culture there that was not conducive for everybody to be the best that they could be every day. You say that something was amiss. What was it that you felt wasn't right about the culture? Well, one of the, the most interesting first meetings I had when, when I arrived was we had this thing called the DRC, or not the Democratic Republic of Congo, but Deal Review Committee. Uh, and we would have a look at what the deals were that we were putting out in the market to our customers. Firstly, the energy was very strange in the room, and there was certain sort of fear, I would say. On one side, I had sales. On the other side, I had marketing, and the head of the table was finance. And really, it became a a case of not deciding how we're going to actually achieve and deliver these deals with our customers and grow our business, but everybody making sure that they were all right and they weren't going to accept the blame. So sales was saying marketing wasn't giving the materials that they needed. Sales was saying finance wasn't giving them the right price. Finance was saying marketing didn't know what they were doing. And our sales people didn't know how to sell. So it became really a, a toxic culture of everybody trying to protect their backs, but actually no one actually trying to collaborate and figure out how we were actually going to grow the business. And then when I got into it more and more, um, started you know speaking to, to our customers, they said, look, you're slow. We give you feedback, but you never come back to us. Um, so we landed up having really this culture that was in one way very confrontational, really looking to proportion blame on people 
And then the other side, what was happening is that people were doing really avoidant behaviors and not taking the decisions, not going back to customers because everyone was petrified of being blamed for doing something wrong rather than wanting to achieve something good. So we're in a, in a really bad space at that particular time. Because, Corinne, an environment that is fear-based where mm. people are, are anxious to do anything in case it's the wrong thing or they get the blame, mm. it's not a great work environment for anyone, is it? Not at all. It's very difficult to think clearly. It's very difficult to think beyond the tunnel vision of self-interest. So people are just really head down and they're just trying to survive the day. And so the the pity for that for everyone and the business and the customers is that everybody gets consumed and hijacked with pointing the finger to make sure that they're okay rather than focusing on problem solving and and growing, growing themselves. But I think it's very difficult to do anything if you're feeling threatened and you're feared, you're in, in a fear state. So Guy, you mentioned there that things weren't right. You knew early on. Yep. What then did you do to implement some change? Well, I um, was really fortunate and I had an exceptional head of HR who had been doing and studying about culture a lot. We all know that when we've been in high-performing teams, it's such a wonderful experience, uh, such an enriching experience, and you know what it feels like and it feels really good. And then we've all been in teams that are completely dysfunctional or that have bad cultures, and we know what that feels like. You know, you get burnt out, you're tired, you're in a constant state of anxiety. So I knew what it felt like, and I knew what we were in a place which wasn't good. What I didn't really have was, one was the vocabulary around discussing culture. The other was a diagnostic tool where we could actually understand what it was and then the things to do because so often I've seen oh you know culture and we make it a slogan and then we have a comms exercise and then everybody nothing changes so the first step was to use the circumplex to really get an understanding of what type of culture that we had to really see where we were the huge benefit of that circumplex is it gave us a vocabulary where we could talk about one another's behaviors that we could understand and share with one another. If you don't have that, then it's very difficult to discuss what your culture is going to be. Um, so that circumplex that was developed by human synergistics and is used in the LSI and OCI was amazingly helpful to show us our culture in the mirror and to see what we needed to be uh, to be done. Corinne, tell us more about mm. the circumplex. What is it and what does it reveal? The circumplex is, it looks a little bit like a radar and basically it's a, it's a way of measuring and mapping culture. So everybody believes that culture is important, but as Guy said, it's, you can't see it, you can't touch it. And so one of the things that we do when we measure a culture is we map it. And so you get almost like this MRI on, on culture and there are different colours. There's blue, which represents constructive cultures, and then you've got the red and green, which is defensive. So when you said it's hard to be at your, your best when you're afraid, that usually happens in what we call a defensive culture. So the circumplex the value of it is that it, it's like an MRI, so it shows you what is going on, A. 
The second thing that it does is because everybody's learning about it, it provides a common language. And so suddenly we kind of had a feeling, you know, I would call it this, you would call it that. And suddenly what the circumflex does is allow everybody to use the same language. It's very simple to understand. And so it's like a shortcut to be able to provide a common ground for how we talk about our culture, what's working and what needs work. And part of the other thing that Guy talked about was so it maps, visually maps the culture like an MRI and then it tells you why you've got that culture and what you can do about it, which is where, you know, a lot of the gold is because it takes some of the guesswork out of it because you can't see there are so many hidden dynamics in an organisation and what the circumflex does is lift it all to the surface so people can see it. We can talk about what it sounds like. We can talk about what it looks like, both when it's working well and when it's not working well. And so I think by making it concrete, that's what helps the organisation come up with an action plan and move forward. So, Guy, you had this action plan. You had some vocabulary around what was happening within the culture, within the organisation. What did it show you? Yeah, so we we did the um, uh, OCI, which was basically that MRI scan of our culture. The first thing that struck me was the constructive values and behaviors were very, very low. Um, We didn't have much blue in our organization, so we didn't have many constructive uh, ways of behaving. And then on the sort of a more aggressive uh, defensive styles, uh, the red styles, we were really very, very high, uh, exceptionally high in oppositional and power play. And I think those, you know, those people who displayed those aggressive oppositional and power plays, the response of a lot of people was to move into avoidant behavior. And so they were just wanting to get away from those people who were doing that. And that's why we weren't being able to turn around things quickly. We weren't being able to work together because we weren't really respecting one another. So, so that gave us a really quite, quite disheartening snapshot of our culture. It was in a really, really bad place. One of the other things that you do do, though, is you do um, an OCR on where you would like to be. So you ask your, your associates and your employees where they would like to be, and it's no surprise uh, all that red and green shrank significantly um, and people wanted to be in a constructive culture. And certainly what came back to us is that people were were really desiring, you know, uh, behaviors that were humanistic and encouraging and an affiliative, which were in direct opposition to, to all those uh, red uh, cultures that we had had. So you have all this information now at your fingertips. How then do you actually change the culture though? It's all well and good to have the info, but how can you make a difference for the people who are part of your team? Well, I think the key thing was, you know, to share that information and to share it in an open way because it was confronted with saying, you know, we didn't have a good culture, but also to have that aspiration of the type of culture that you want to be in. And I think when you describe it, and that's what the circumplex gives you, it gives you a language where you can Say, yes, that's what I want. Yes, I want to be achievement-focused. Yes, I want to be self-actualized. And what does that actually mean? So we sold them into where we wanted to be. And I think most people want to work 
in a high performing team and in a nice culture. It's you know there there are only a very few minority uh, that don't. What we also though did along that is we uh, made sure that we had a number of interventions that were enablements to those sort of behaviors. So one of the things that people really grasp and have real difficulty with is giving constructive feedback. You know, generally we don't want to give feedback because we don't want to be seen to be criticizing. And then generally what you do is you wait and you wait so long and then you get so stressed that you land up delivering it in a way that is really suboptimal. So we spend a lot of time on how to give and receive feedback in a constructive way, even if you're telling someone else that, look, this isn't working and you need to get better at this. There are different ways of doing that and you can do that in a great way. We spend a lot of time on coaching as well, um, really understanding how we can all become better coaches. And then we went on a journey with pretty much everybody in getting them to do their own LSIs to see those behaviors that they particularly are exhibiting and then to work out personal development plans. And, you know, we used to talk about the one thing because it's really difficult to change your behavior. I think there was a lot of personal change that people had to take into account. There were skills that they needed to acquire, which is how to give and receive feedback and how to be effective coaching. And then there needed to be that goal and that that thing that we wanted to achieve in the place where we wanted to, to arrive. Corinne, there's a lot there that Guy has spoken about. Mm. Constructive feedback, first of mm. all. Let's, let's talk about that. It's hard to deliver that in the right way. You want to make sure that people hear it in a positive way, not Mm. just you're having a go at me, how dare you, Mm. and you get your back up. And it's so important because otherwise what people do is pussyfoot around it in order to give the feedback. As Guy said, you wait too long and then you become angry and resentful about it and so you just torpedo out these comments. And what happens in those instances is a relationship breaks. And so... The idea with feedback is as hard as it feels because it feels like you are on the line and it feels like your relationship is on the line, especially if it's negative feedback. You know, when I saw you do that, it had a really negative impact on me and I I want to explain to you how that felt. So it's difficult sometimes just to get the words out, but it's the most powerful thing that our organisations, our leaders can learn how to do A and B learn how to teach people how to do it because what happens with feedback also is if your relationship isn't strong, that's when it becomes a real problem and a bit of a deal breaker. And so long before you learn the words, it's really about making sure that you're investing in the relationship, taking time with people, not just in social chit-chat, but actually working with people to deliver something together. But there are ways of delivering feedback that sound authentic. So the best way to deliver feedback, what's important is that the other person knows that you're not trying to drag them down. You're not trying to attack them. You're really trying to share something that's important to both of you. One thing also, I also wanted to pick up on, Guy, what you'd mentioned as well, is looking to do one thing. 
to make a difference in one area because often, you know, change is challenging for people and it's overwhelming. But if there's just one particular thing that someone can focus on, that's the start. Was there something for you that that was that one thing that you began? Yeah, so I did begin in, maybe I'll just talk about, you know, also in the past. So, you know, I've been on quite a journey over many, many years and I think, you know, I had a number of, issues that I needed to get to grips with. One was insecurity and the other was my ego. And it was a bit of a toxic combination and I needed to win at everything. I needed to be the cleverest guy in the room and I needed to make sure that everybody was aware of that. And those were really driving a whole lot of very, well, what we call in the circumplex, red behaviors. So I would be very power-driven, very oppositional, and I needed over my years to, to realize that I didn't know everything, that I wasn't the smartest person in the room, that I needed to be okay with that. And then I needed to move to probably that area where I was most comfortable, which was around task-based constructive things about achievement. So I was able to make that change in the past. But what was really confronting with uh, the LSI, which is that circumplex on my own leadership time in this time, was that my team was really asking me to be a lot more humanistic and a lot more encouraging. I tend to err more to the side of getting things done, tasks, all of that sort of stuff. And it was great. It was really good feedback to have from, from my team and, and the people I work with. Was it hard though? Was it hard to hear that? And how hard was it to look at changing the way you did things? I I think it wasn't so much um, hard because I felt that I needed to, and I do feel that I always need to get better in stuff. And it's great knowing from other people where they want you to get better at. So that wasn't so hard. I think for some people it can be, but making the change is really hard and doing it day in, day out. So you know, my one big thing that I want to to tackle is, you know, I want to be as interested in my people as I am in what they do <laughs> and get that right balance and, and constantly seek that feedback from people. But it's it's the one thing that I'm I'm trying to work on. You know, I go, you know, two steps forward, one step or two steps back. Um, so I think it's gonna be something that's gonna take me take me a while to do. But I need people around me who I trust and who are invested in that personal development as well and can hold you accountable for that. And that's what we do as a leadership team. We all have that one thing, behavioral thing that we're trying to work on, and we're trying to give one another support to do that. Corinne, it's so refreshing hearing a leader talk about his vulnerabilities and, and, and sort of, in inverted commas, sort of failings or flaws, mm, isn't mm, it? It's amazing. and. Yes, it is unusual to hear that because many leaders feel that they can't do it without losing a sort of persona of strength. What Guy said so important, the one thing, you know, if it's the right one thing, it'll deal with many issues at once. By the time you're a successful executive, you're so well trained unconsciously in terms of a set of habits that have been with you and served you well for a long time that at some point you realise you've got to change something, but it's so well drilled and that it's really very hard to do, I think, anything more than just one thing because what you're dealing with 
you have to change what you grew up believing was true about yourself. So I have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to change that belief and mindset in order to be able to see what other behavioural choices are available to you. It's very inspiring. Oh, it is. It, and as I said, refreshing. You you talk to Guy about the personal change that's involved if you're going to have any sort of transformation within an organisation. Where is your organisation at now? So uh, really pleased the first OCI we did in 2018 and the follow-up we did in 2020 was you know, almost a complete switch and change. Suddenly we were in the, the top bands for all the affiliatives. It was great to see humanistic and encouraging getting really high as well. And then all those red and greens shrunk uh, significantly and a, a huge, huge change to, to the culture. It is, you know, a journey that we work really hard on, but I was really glad. And I think to anybody embarking on it, those constructive behaviors and the way you've seen them spelt out and described, no one's going to say no, they don't want to work in that. And so that purpose and that goal that we had, I think really brought everybody together. Unfortunately, not everybody was ready for that. In hindsight, there were a few leaders in the organization who I gave the benefit of the doubt that they wanted to change, that they wanted to be part of this new culture. But for whatever personal reasons that they had, they either weren't bought into that or they weren't able to, to make the change. In the end, there were a few leaders that, that needed to leave the organization as well. But really, really super pleased with the huge change that we made in actually a relatively short space of time. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, what, four years to have such a shift? Yeah. Well, it was actually even even quicker than that because we, we did it in, in 20. So it was it was about two-year shift, which was really good, really good. I want to know then what what do you think the key to that was, that, that shift? I mean, you've spoken about focusing on the one thing, looking within yourself to changes that you did yourself. So then I imagine there's a trickle-down through the organisation, but is there something else that you could say that people who are listening who might think, well, what is it that they did that that I need to do or that I should consider? Yeah, I think probably to some of the things that I spoke before, but really the thing that made the change is all our associates, sorry to use the term associates, employees, all of them deciding that they didn't want to work in that old culture. It was not cool and it was not good and that they were willing to give it a try to be in a culture where we can be collaborative, where we do want to work together on things, where we're not trying to position ourselves in the best way or think about the messaging, but actually what do we need to do? And I think the really impactful thing that we had was uh, we run uh, culture days and where we get together for a day or two every six months to discuss our culture, what's the thing that we're going to be working on. And a lot of it were, you know, just people getting up and sharing their own personal transformation, the issues that they were dealing with, the things that were stopping them from being a constructive individual, and the one big thing that they worked on. And I think that was really powerful when you had your you know, your colleagues talking about their own personal journeys and what they're wanting to do. I think that really just struck a chord with everybody else. 
Corinne, you can you can see, mm. can't you, how that that does then filter through that people are given permission yeah. to talk about what they want to do and why this change is important to them. Absolutely. And I think none of that happens unless the leaders are on board. And so, you know, I remember the first time I met Guy, he came to what we call a showcase event where we explain how the tools work. You don't see many CEOs come to these sessions because it's the human resources. And he was there at every step of the way with his own curiosity. Now, if a leader doesn't believe that it's worth committing the time, effort, resources and and money into this, then it doesn't happen. And so the permission that Guy's talking about has to come from the leader and the leaders. And so one of the things that we see, and I've done a lot of interviews with CEOs, and one of the things, the question I always ask is, would you have done anything differently? What they always say is, it became clear that some of our senior leaders or leaders didn't want to come on this journey and I wish I had managed their performance sooner because if a leader stands up, culture is really about the integrity and credibility of the leaders and the organisation. So you can't just stand up and say, you know, we want you to be empowered, we want you to grow, we want you to be high-performing without actually putting your money where your mouth is. But if you have a leaders beneath you who white ant, then that completely smashes the credibility of the organisation. So I think leadership is very, very important because it authorises the change. It provides permission. It gives the resources. Most importantly, it shows people the way. Leaders like Guy role model and sort of say this is what it looks like. And not because they've got it right, but because... People want to see that it's a genuine attempt at change. And if they can see that, then they will start to give it a go. Guy, how would you describe yourself as a leader now? Um, well, I think generally I would say I'm super interested in the business and I love people who are also interested in that. I think there's certainly that intellectual side that, that goes with that. I would say I'm a lot more uh, collaborative. I would also say that I try to give inspiration to the team. But first and foremost, I make sure that I don't bring my anxiety and drop it on my employees. Uh, And that's been a huge, huge learning for me. So I think that's been one of the, the key things. It's very easy to do that. And all it does is create fear and anxiety. So I would think I was hopefully inspirational uh, to my team that I have the ability to always listen to them. I do think one of the key things as well is if someone reaches out to me by email or by phone, it's taking them something to do that. You know, most people don't go to the big boss with things unless they're important or at least important to them. So always make sure that you reply and listen. So yeah, but I, th- I think that's that's where I would be. Um, you know, always always wanting to, to, to get better, but I'm hoping I'm getting a lot more out of my team now than I ever was um, in the past. Um, and I'm hoping I'm creating an environment where they also get a lot more out of their business and their work. And I do think that's happening now. There's a lot more smiles and a lot more happiness um, in the team. And, and we can have fun together and still 
achieve things that we weren't ever achieving when we were such a, a miserable fear-induced organisation. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the, indeed, and what a transformation you have led. What I'm keen to find out about is you talk about how you've learned to sort of park that anxiety. Yep. How have you done that? How have you left that? Well, it's um, through years of, of realising my whole life has always been about setting goals and achieving things and, you know, that's what I do. I, that's the way I uh, work. Um, and I just needed to realize that whenever I took that anxiety, all those things that I was fearing, and I dumped it on someone else, made me feel good for maybe 15, 20 minutes, you know, it's a <laughs> little release. All right, now they've got it. That's they their worry. That's no, their problem. Um, but it stopped us achieving. It made my organization less effective. And now I'm not a single contributor. I can't go and say, oh, well, that's what I achieved. It's, you know, it's always through a team. It's always through a bunch of people. You know, it took me to realize that by doing that, I'm actually not going to be able to achieve what I want for, for our team. So it, it took a long time. You know, I'm not a quick learner, but I got there eventually. <laughs> oh, I think you're an incredible learner and, and open. I think, Corinne, you know, hearing Guy talk about things that he's learned and behaviours that he has changed. And also I love that notion too of you thinking well, or doing returning phone calls, email messages, that, you know, if your employees have taken that time, you too will take the time. It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it, Corinne? It is. I think it's respectful. And what I liked about what Guy said there was if someone's written to me, it's not just that they've taken time, but it, it took courage to write to the big boss because you've got no idea how they'll react. So you're acting on blind faith. Now, that doesn't happen unless there's a culture of embracing diversity, being open, and people who care enough to speak up. And so I think that's phenomenal. And it is so important for leaders to acknowledge that effort as well as respond to it. And I think in my experience... Um, never underestimate how employees really value some of the small things, that, that you know their name, that you remembered something about their family, that they saw your email. I didn't get a chance to respond to it, but I'll, I'll come back to it. So these are, I think, sort of courtesies, small courtesies that make a big difference for someone who is reporting into you and trusting you to lead them so incredibly important. And I think sometimes leaders lose sight of that. They're under so much pressure to deliver on the numbers that it's easy to forget that you're actually not in charge of anything. You're in charge of the people who are in charge of things. And so if you want to get a good result, you need to look after the people who will deliver the result for you. And I think that's what I heard in what Guy was was saying there is I can't put my anxiety on my people because that'll stop them from being able to perform. Yeah, certainly. I, I think everything that you achieve is is through other people and um, they need to be in a space where they can do the best that they can do. And it's amazing how many things we can throw at people to, to stop them. And, you know, things like targets. I mean, the targets used to give me so much anxiety in the past and now we're going to make it and I do all this amazing analysis to see if we we're going to run rates and where we we're going to make it and and then shout at the sales team to sell more because we weren't going to make it. And and now, 
we we do our target and then we forget about it. And we spend our time talking about what we're going to do with who and how. Because really, that's the only thing that's ever going to drive you sales and make you achieve stuff. Not only am I dependent on my team for what they're doing, but then we're also depending on our customers for doing what we need them to do. And so you're needing that collaborative working space with with everybody. Just focus on what you're wanting to achieve rather than some arbitrary number that someone gave you. So Guy, you've done all of this incredible work on culture, but what is it actually meant for the business, for the bottom line? Um, So really pleased that it's actually developed really and delivered amazing uh, results. So as I said, five years, flat sales, declining profitability. Now for the past three years, we've grown double digit every year, um, grown our operating income more than our top line. Uh, Next year, we'll be twice the size that we were when we arrived. Uh, I think it's just exceptional results. And I think one of the things that's really clearly defines that. And in 2018, we were the fourth largest generics and biosimilar company in Australia. And this year we are number one. And that was two years before the, the goal that we set for ourselves. So um, it's been, been amazing results. So doubling, doubling the size of the business, going from four to number one uh, and continuing to grow double digit every year. So Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, that, that is so brilliant because it, it shows, doesn't it, that having the right sort of culture within your workplace isn't just about making people happy. Yep. It's about far more than that. Exactly. And then fundamentally, nothing's particularly changed in the market, my portfolio of products that I sell, the vast majority of my employees are exactly the same people. It's really fundamentally the same, but this change in the ways of working and that change of culture has delivered a performance improvement um, that this organization in Australia and New Zealand has never, ever seen. Well done, you. Thank you. <laughs> and and my associates as well. Guy, thank you so much for showing us what culture in action really is all about. It's been a real joy and a privilege to talk with you. Thank you very much. Very much enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Keeping Good Company. On the next episode, we'll be chatting about leadership expectations with Tanya Deans, President of Haynes Australia. What does good, effective leadership actually look like? This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Human Synergistics, hosted by me, Jess Rowe, produced by Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Falston. Listener.